Hello, everybody, and welcome to our podcast series, The Global Realities of Cybersecurity. I'm your host, Chris McConkie, based in London for PwC. Each episode of this series, we'll be inviting along some of our colleagues who are experts in their fields to discuss what they do at PwC and what they're focusing on at the moment in the ever-changing world of cybersecurity. Today's conversation is centered around the cyber threat landscape, and I'm joined by Jerry Stellados and Sloan Menkes, principals at PwC over in the US, and who have spent their careers helping organizations respond to breaches and crisis events. Sloan, Jerry, thank you very much for joining me today. I'll give you guys a, a brief opportunity to introduce yourselves. Thanks, Chris. This is Sloan Minkus. I'm a principal, as you mentioned, over in our U.S. cybersecurity and privacy practice. And I've focused the past 22 years on cybersecurity, really been around the cycle of cyber and securing assets. And I spend most of my time building executive resiliency into organizations and helping with the cyber strategy to do so. Hi, this is Jerry Stilatos. I'm a principal within our U.S. cybersecurity and privacy practice, alone with, along with Sloan. I'm currently responsible for leading incident response and threat intelligence for the U.S. member firm. Uh, my background, based over the last 18 years, has been focused on helping organizations detect and respond. I initially started my career working at the National Security Agency as a global network analyst, and then transitioned into private industry, helping organizations uh, detect, respond, as well as uh, improve their overall maturity and resilience with respect to cybersecurity. Thanks for having us. So, Jerry, I guess if we can start with you, since you and your team literally spend every day responding to intrusions and breaches, can you give us a view of a few of the kind of new or interesting changes that you've seen in the landscape over the recent years or so? Sure, Chris. Happy to. You know, w what's old is new in that the incidents or themes that we've seen uh, affecting our clients previously are still continuing to happen today. Uh, for example, where, you know, over the past several years, we've seen organizations invest more in threat detection technology, threat intelligence, uh, augmenting their ability to detect and respond with more resources, leveraging external partners. And where we've seen threat actors respond to is that as targets have become harder for them to compromise, they're going to uh, target or focus on the, the weakest link in the chain, for example, supply chain. So, uh, we've seen a reoccurrence, and ultimately the, the targeting and exploitation has been going on, but targeted or trusted third parties, where organizations are still struggling with the basic fundamentals of information security. What assets do I have? What's my perimeter as I move to the cloud? But uh, who has access to my environment? What resources, support do they provide? And when we see threat actors is when it's hard to go in through the front door, ultimately from a client perspective or targeting, they're finding these trusted parties and looking to leverage them because ultimately that might provide access into an environment or, or certainly the information that they have as well. I would say from a second theme, and this was something that was very uh, interesting to me in my own career where I have a lot of experience doing targeted threat actor investigations. And in some situations, we would see uh, the same use of infrastructure or tooling that targeted threat actors would use uh, on nation state or commercial industry, but then we also would see that potentially being repurposed or used for targeting of non-nation state clients or specific verticals. You know, one thing that comes to mind, I worked a case involving uh, law firms that were affected by targeting. And in this situation, we see that there were nation state threat actors that actually leveraged tooling and infrastructure to uh, target 
law firms for, for ultimately personal gain or financial gain. I know recently you've got something out of the UK where from an organized crime perspective, I think it'd be helpful to share with the group. Yeah, Jerry, there's, there's some really uh, interesting stuff happening in that space at the minute. I guess one of the big trends that we've seen in the organized crime space, particularly in the last 12 months, has been this evolution of almost like the clan mentality, um, which is very much like a syndicate clan relationship between a whole bunch of actors that previously have operated pretty distinctly, but are developing relationships to deliver each other's payloads, um, to kind of refer people to each other and actually monetize the victim environments that they have access to uh, in a much more coordinated and sophisticated way. And obviously one of the most prevalent ones of those in the last uh, 12 months, which has resulted in some really big impact incidents is the combination of Emotet trick bot and Ryuk um, as a kind of a trilogy that whenever it gets into a network, figures out what it's in and then starts delivering extra payloads that end up in pretty targeted ransomware uh, is, is really, really interesting. The other one that's kind of linked to that, and I mentioned Ryuk, is the whole big game ransomware side of things. And I know you guys have been working on a bunch of cases in this space as well. Yeah, this has been uh, recently, just with some of the, the the recent trend around, and I'm likely not going to pronounce this correctly, but Soden, you might help me with this, Sonokipi. I get it wrong every time. Yeah, um, where, you know, clients, you know, ransomware certainly has been a a topic of mind across all client bases where what ultimately is an effective strategy and for threat actors you know the general premise was you know enter into an environment encrypt all the information and then ultimately a client would make a business decision whether or not to pay or not and there was always this the information was just encrypted but ultimately was not transferred out of the environment an assumption or you know you know, investigators like us would come in and based on the available evidence, available evidence, help our clients make a determination of, of what did or, or did not happen. What's happened recently, though, is we're seeing the threat of releasing this information if a client or organizations that are victims do not pay. And that's a bit of a game changer and a bit scary for, for, for individuals that are concerned about ransomware and that this premise around, you know, disrupting or impacting the business is certainly impactful, but now that information might be exposed or transferred out of the environment, certainly will lead to organizations thinking about how do they respond to a crisis like this? You know, what potential litigation or what potential outcomes might result if information be exposed? It's not that just, you know, when your business is affected by ransomware, you're exposed, you're disrupted, but ultimately this will lead to potentially additional litigation and other outcomes that might be problematic. Jerry, I mean, we're only in early 2020 at this stage, and there have already been some pretty high-profile examples uh, of exactly the type that you described already in the press. So it's definitely something we're seeing, I think, more actors uh, start to, to, to focus on uh, in terms of that kind of both ransomware but potential information leak uh, afterwards as well. So let, Sloan, let me throw this uh, over to you, because that whole disruptive attack space actually very often demands quite a different lens on incident response generally, I guess much more focused on the incident management, service restoration, continuity side of things. So how, how have you seen organizations bridge the gap between what typically happens on the technical forensics and investigative aspect of incident response um, and up to the wider crisis and organizational response to those types of things? Yeah, thanks, Chris. I think it's still a lot of the same. Yet we see organizations utilizing more and more the idea or even the ideal 
of responding to crisis holistically. And what I mean by that is a crisis is a business disruptor, no matter what type of incident it is, you know, whether it's ransomware, encrypting and locking down information, or it's a different threat actor app using a different threat vector. So really bringing the response mentality together, using the principle of managing, as you mentioned, Chris, those organizational crises and looking at it as more than just an IT issue. And so how do you do that? Well, it translates into those usual principles that one would apply to business disruption or a crisis. You need to have a crisis plan. You need to know who are all the folks or people. I like to think of it as answering, what is the crisis plan? Who is involved or named as key participants in responding to a crisis? And how are they going to respond? And what's most important for them to be thinking about? And you want to have exercise that. You want to build up resiliency. And we're seeing organizations as they're responding, either they are resilient because they've been thinking through this or they have practiced and built up some resiliency. One thing I haven't mentioned is communications. Those communication plans and the channels for communicating, whether it's off band because you want to secure it and you know that people are going to be looking inside your technology for communications that are key to going around this business disruptor or crisis. We want to make sure that communication channels are there that are both out of band and, uh, and aligned with your organization and secured so that you have an efficient response. Awesome. Thank you. And I guess both of you guys are continually out talking to clients who've been impacted by some sort of cyber attack. So, I mean, in your experience, and I guess, Sloan, if we can start with you again, what are the kind of top three things that you typically see clients thinking about or exploring that actually have some sort of impact in terms of helping them manage their threat profile? Sure. So the first thing, Chris, that I'd say is practice, practice, practice. I foreshadowed that just a moment ago with my answer. Think executive exercises, whether it's on a crisis plan or even an incident response plan, if it's a cyber incident response plan, those are important, but we're seeing clients more and more combine them with red and purple teaming and really utilizing the exercise as a way for executives to build the resiliency, but also bring in the technical team and let them build in the resiliency through red and purple teaming and enterprises. So I'd say that's number one. Number two, I think as clients continue to increase the use of analytics, they're developing these more refined use cases and really embedding those processes across their cyber programs. And so there's this array of technical solutions and technology that our clients are deploying. And those tools allow the deployment of capabilities that are going to promote more response capabilities and resiliency. And then lastly, I'd say the third thing that I think we're seeing to answer your question is that given some of these recent high profile breaches we're seeing an increase in the market's focus on cyber due diligence prior to mergers and acquisitions. And why is that? Because, well, we've seen some very public activities that have actually affected the outcome. And there's been a shift from viewing M&A risk as being focused just on compliance and as an organization complying with what they have to do, whether that's a regulator in their industry, or is that compliance being focused uh, on potential vulnerabilities and the look 
is on potential vulnerabilities that a company may need to identify and mitigate before an acquisition. And I'll pause there and just say, sometimes you can't mitigate before an acquisition. You've got to mitigate afterwards. And that, that goes back to um, planning. You've got to plan for what the post-integration merger is going to look like. If you've identified the vulnerabilities, maybe they do affect the acquisition state, but put a plan together on that post-integration that allows you to deal with those vulnerabilities you've identified. Nice. What about you, Jerry? Yeah, great. Uh, you know, I think Sloan is spot on with her her comments that she just shared. And I'll piggyback on that last point around mergers and acquisitions activity where a lot of our clients and I would say industry in general is um, there's some recent examples where the valuation of deals uh, have certainly been affected as a result of the acquire target company having a breach or some type of event. And organizations are starting to think, well, how do I change my, my threat profile model as far as due diligence as well? And we see it seeing a lot more clients asking for support I would, in non-traditional ways, focus around technical testing services. Can I do a red team? Can I do an external or internal vulnerability assessment or penetration test as well, depending on the maturity of the organization? And then as well as the, the concept around proactive threat hunting, where can I identify threats that might exist in an environment? And Sloan and I, when we're having these conversations with clients, we'll tend to phrase this around pre-deal, pre-network integration or post-deal pre-network integration where uh, there are some services that are advantageous up front to help organizations potentially understand the risk. But then ultimately, uh, you've got two large or potentially two small entities. How do you bring them together and how does that fit into a broader strategy? I would say that the two other areas of focus that we see clients talk about more coming out of threat actor uh, events are first being resilience. And there's been a, a focus in the market about what truly is resilience. You know, here at PwC, we've we've had a lot of conversations with clients around it's not just business continuity, disaster recovery. And some of those basic fundamentals of information security build into an organization being able to have a, a stronger posture around resilience. What are my assets? What are my perimeter? If I think about my technology that exists in a data center as I'm moving to the cloud as well, uh, organizations are coming up with or asking for new ways, how do I identify dependencies that might exist between those assets, both from a critical infrastructure, critical services, critical systems, as well as you know core systems that just help run environments like Active Directory. And I know we're going to be talking about that a little bit later on in, in the podcast. You know, and then lastly, you know, we here at PwC have focused on how can we do more with less but leverage technology to help us implement or enable our, our service or solution delivery. And clients are coming to that with, that with that same ask. You know, we've got clients that have different technologies. They may or may not be able to attract or retain talent and are looking for, you know, solutions to help them do more with less. How can I enable technology to talk to another and facilitate response, facilitate my GRC type application? So a lot of conversations around automation and how can you implement that in the business and get technologies talking to each other to enable both security and the business as well. Very cool. Thank you. And yeah, I, just, I'll, I guess I'll throw one more in the mix from the European uh, side of the pond, which is that we quite regularly see businesses over here that, I mean, it 
be exactly the same in the US, I'm sure. They're effectively running on a patchwork quilt of old processes and systems that have evolved over decades. And there's definitely something that we're seeing a few CISOs and CIOs um, start thinking about a lot more over here, which is about re-architecting what they're trying to secure in order to make it more securable and, and actually just simplify it so that it's actually easier to secure rather than just sticking more band-aid on what they've already got. And quite often, whenever you get under the hood of those things, the fundamental issues at the core of that is the whole AD environment and how identity and privileged access and administration activities are managed across the organization, not just from a technical perspective, like how do I uh, get a privileged account whenever I need it, but actually the cultural level as well in terms of how the administrative teams are willing to accept some change in how they go about doing their business actually to make it more um, securable. Okay, so to wrap us up, uh, I'm going to ask you both to break out your crystal balls and tell me what you think we're going to see in the rest of 2020 in terms of the threat landscape and what trends, either the geopolitical side of things or the technological side of things, are going to keep driving change in the threat landscape for our clients. Sloan, let's start with you. Great. I think real-world events were here in early 2020. We know those are causing immediate cyber activity. Uh, recent events uh, in the Middle East causing a, a wave of attacks. But even before that, we were seeing a wave of attacks against U.S.-based utilities and critical infrastructure, even those located near dams and locks. And I think it highlights just how dangerous cyber attacks can be on daily lives if those cyber attacks are not defended against. And so really, as we continue to see upgrades to critical infrastructure, Cyber defenses and controls really, the, they will lead to service interruptions and downtime for customers because organizations are dependent on maintaining service while also finding that availability to make the necessary changes to improve their security posture. And I don't just mean IT in this statement. I'm talking about the operational technology as well. So uh, ICRS and those controls as well as the operational technology controls. I'll just add to, I think, different point of view, but it, we saw and we all know the effects on the election cycle in the U.S. a few years ago and how different actor groups continue to attempt to influence public opinion and with a focus on the methods and sources of information that not only our journalists but the pu general public got information. So when I crack open my crystal ball, I know that there are election cycles upcoming, and I think we'll continue to see increased foreign interest in influencing that, and they'll do that through different threat vectors. Jerry, back over to you. We'll have to do a podcast in a year from now to see how right or how wrong I am with uh, the next several statements. So, um, you know, sounds good. I think we'll continue to see the targeting of trust relationships, third party suppliers in that you know, as we become more interconnected and organizations uh, do rely on third parties to help provide services or some type of capability to them, because frankly, talent is a challenge for a lot of organizations. As long as that interconnectivity and trust continues to to build and, you know, organizations rely on it, uh, ultimately threat actors will look to exploit that for access. Another trend that, you know, I know this is something that our, our global team, Intel team, has been tracking is this increasing availability of capabilities that, you know, traditionally 
whereas nation states were had the capability, resources, you know, technology, manpower to build zero days or or build out exploits. Now we're seeing prevalence of you know tooling that allows organizations to effectively cut out their R&D. When I say organizations, nefarious individuals such as organized crime or potentially other nation states that are looking to evolve or develop their own capabilities. So it's much easier to conduct computer network operations uh, in today's day and age as compared to years ago. And I think that's something that we'll continue to see. Uh, and then lastly, you know, there, there's still a lot of, you know, work that can be done around planning and preparation. And as much as we talk about, you know, going back to the basics or fundamentals of information security, you know, organizations are still trying to get their hands around asset management, asset identification, and those basic fundamentals. So in in some situations, uh, you know, I think clients are taking a step back and thinking, how if we start doing those building blocks right, helping us, you know, incorporate that incorporate those themes into resilience. And ultimately, you know, the more resilient you are, the less likely that, you know, you will have a service disruption. And one of the things that I've always advised clients is when an external threat actor enters your environment through a trusted insider, and we're seeing a lot of clients now start thinking about control frameworks where the same controls that can be used to prevent targeted threat actor intrusions can ultimately help you with insiders as well. So, I threw a fourth one in there, but ultimately, I think, you know, what's old is new. I'll let you away with having four rather than three. Um, thank, thank you very much for that. So thank you to my guests, Sloan Menkes and Jerry Stellaros, and thank you for joining us to listen in. Remember to subscribe to our podcast series so that you don't miss out on future episodes. And if you have any questions about what we do here at PwC in cybersecurity, please reach out to me or my guests. 